If you live in the Western world, so I'm thinking Australia, New Zealand, UK, Canada, where else? US, and I guess to a lesser extent, Mother, Mother England's outposts like India, you are actually living, whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not, in societies that have a strong Judeo-Christian heritage. Um, whether you are a person of faith, or you're not interested in faith, or you just don't, uh, or you really don't like faith, the reality is we live with vestiges of uh, this Christian heritage. It's in our uh, holidays, it's in our language, it's in, more importantly, in our psyche, in the way we perceive things like individualism or the good or morality or what is right. So today, I'm interviewing someone who can have a nice, robust discussion with me on what exactly are those principles? What, how are we to think about them? And whether you are a person of faith or not, this is important because we live in a society which is, for lack of a better word, infected by these ideas, even though many of us do not identify any longer as Christian. And so today we're going to explore some of these issues. Who is Jesus? Who is God? What is Christianity? What kind of an effect has it had on our society? So that we can understand some of the more interesting things happening around us in the world today, but importantly, where we are going. Now, I've been looking for a long time for someone who can have this kind of discussion. I think I've found someone with enough metal, enough uh, steel in their spine in terms of conviction of their beliefs uh, to talk about these things. And it is uh, a, a great honor to have him in the studio today. This is Bishop Paul Barker. Welcome to the studios. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Paul, uh, an Anglican bishop, uh, you've just educated me on what what that means. But how about you tell us a little bit about, before we get started on these big issues, um, exactly what you oversee? Like, what is your role here in Australia? Sure. Uh, I'm uh, one of about 45 bishops in Australia, Anglican, uh, part of the Diocese of Melbourne. Uh, the, um, we have an archbishop and four bishops. I'm one of those four. And we oversee 220 or 30 parishes, uh, churches, and so on, roughly from Lawn to Pakenham. And, um, and up to the northern part of Melbourne. Um, and, you've and, I, and my role is uh, oversight of uh, 80 uh, churches in the south and the eastern part of Melbourne. Okay. And you've, uh, sorry, Google, tell me if it's true. You've had a lot of experience overseas as well in Southeast Asia. So you would have a perspective that is not just this Western perspective that I mentioned. You would see Christianity outworking in a very different context. Yeah, I lived uh, for seven years in Malaysia. Uh, but in, for nearly 20 years, I've regularly, um, and most years uh, when I lived here, go and teach somewhere in Asia, uh, often in China, Myanmar, India. But then living in Malaysia was traveling to teach in Bible colleges and train pastors uh, in most of the sort of Eastern Asian, uh, mm. Southeast Asian countries um, annually or three or four times a year in different places. So lots of different contexts, whether that's uh, Buddhist, Islamic, Hindu, uh, communist, Catholic in the Philippines, uh, and Western, of course, here. So a whole range of different places. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I still, even though I've been back in Melbourne six years, I, I still go back uh, and teach. So last month I was back in Myanmar to teach in a, in a graduate school there. Okay. Well, I think you're the right man to ask these questions of then. Okay. So are you ready, um, if you'll allow me to unleash my curiosity upon you? Uh, let me ask the big questions and then narrow in small. So first of all, Paul, uh, Bishop Paul Barker, what is faith? And not just in the, so you've got the Christian, specifically Christian context, but also, you know, you mentioned other 
Uh, the, the two I'm really interested in are the Abrahamic religions, so Islam and, and um, Christianity. Uh, but what is faith and what is it to those who have different faiths other than Christianity? Sure. Uh, well, the, the idea of faith, of course, is, is believing in something or trusting in something. And, um, and so who or what do we trust in? Uh, I think a lot of Western society trusts in humanity. Uh, I've got faith in other people. You hear it often, uh, whether yeah. it's a politician or a, or a person. Yeah. Uh, but I think people let us down, even the best of people. And you know, I know I let people down and they let me down, but I st you, know, you still keep friendships often, but, but it's not a perfect trust. And I think uh, for Christians, uh, our fundamental relationship with God is, a, is an issue of trust. Uh, do we trust what God promises to us? Uh, I'm an Old Testament scholar uh, primarily, and, um, and I see that you know, we've got this huge Bible, really, and, uh, but what it's doing is, is providing us a, a context and content for uh, substantiating why we can have trust in God. Mm. Uh, so let me maybe give an example uh, mm. of that. Um, what makes us trust somebody? So somebody walks up to you in the street and they say, can you lend me $100 and I'll give it back to you tomorrow? Most of us would say, I won't trust you. We don't know the person. So is the person trustworthy? Do we know enough about the person to think they're trustworthy? Mm. So, uh, you know, I might say to you, I will see you at a certain time. And you think, yeah, he's always punctual. He's trustworthy. I'll believe that. Um, but if I was to promise you, you know, perfect health for the rest of your life, you'd doubt me because... Not because I'm not trustworthy, but because I don't have the power to do that. Mm. So um, to take a story in the Old Testament to illustrate the importance of faith and where I think it, in, you know, it brings us into a relationship with God. Um, early in Deuteronomy, which is Moses' final sermon before he dies, in the wilderness before the people cross to the promised land under Joshua, his successor, uh, Moses reminds them of what happened nearly 40 years earlier, where they failed to conquer the land. And uh, there they were scared of the inhabitants of the land uh, because the inhabitants were seen to be like giants and their cities were fortified. And so they went into the land and they basically chickened out. They came back and said, no, 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 we don't want to go in into this land. So when Moses reminds the people of Israel that, he reminds them of why they failed. That is uh, the giants in the land and uh, the fortified cities. And when Moses reminds them, he says, you rebelled against God. And then a few verses later, speaking of the same thing, you did not trust God. And what follows then is he recounts to them how God has already defeated uh, both you know, big people, giants or you know, significant enemies and fortified cities for other people. Uh, he's done it for Edomites and Moabites and others. And, uh, and then Israel itself in the wilderness has already defeated a couple of nations with fortified cities. And so what he's saying is, you look at the evidence, God's already defeated giants, the, land, the language that's used is the Anakim, an ancient people now long gone, and fortified cities. So trust me, I can do it. Uh, so I, I actually see that the whole of the Bible is a bit like that. It's giving us the evidence that God is trustworthy to keep the promises he makes, but he's also powerful to keep the promises he makes. So both those things are needed if you trust anyone. 
So if you trust a person, you need to know they're trustworthy and able to do what they promise. And that's what the Bible is showing us about God. So going back further, God made promises to Abraham that he would be the father of many people, big nation, a great nation, uh, would be a world blessing through him. Now, this is made to an old couple. They're 70, he's 75 at the time. They're barren, no children. What a ridiculous promise to make. Why would Abraham trust it? And after a while, he, he loses trust. And he, and he says, God, I've got no ancestors. Like, this is now 13 more years later. Uh, what, what's going on here? And eventually he does get one in his old age. I mean, it's remarkable. I know that. But uh, what, you know, God didn't choose a couple who are 25, and it's easy for them to have lots of children. But by choosing a man, Abraham, and then even delaying many more years before they have a child, he's showing that he's both trustworthy and powerful to keep an outrageous promise. And that lies at the sort of the ground, if you like, of reading all the way through the Old Testament story. That is, the promises to Abraham are outrageous, and yet the God who makes them shows us continued evidence of both ability and trustworthiness to keep those promises. Um, but when you say evidence, uh, we're not talking about it in the modern, under the secular understanding of, um, of uh, uh, science, right? Like um, testability, empiricism. You're, you're talking about uh, narratives, uh, whether historical or symbolic, and using that as evidence why we should trust God. How secure oh, is that? Oh, well, I think uh, to go back to the first example of Moses preaching to the Israelites, what he's telling them about is narrative, if you like, history. Uh, but for some of them, it's, it's in their living memory. Right. And um, some of the ref references uh, in Deuteronomy 3 are things that have just happened in recent months for them. Yeah. And the failure goes back 38 years. Some of them were, were just children then, um, others not yet born, but it's, it's one generation ago. Yeah. So, so it's, it, it, you know, it's evidential um, uh, as, as a history for them. But what about the um, modern Christian? So you're asking me or you know, someone to see the Bible as evidence why we should trust God. Yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, if you keep tracing the story of, of the Old Testament and seeing how the promises to Abraham, despite all the twists and turns and unlikelihoods in history, yeah. they still continue through the Old Testament period for you know, roughly 2,000 years before you get to Christ. Yeah. Abraham's roughly 2,000 BC. Uh, there's, a, a, you know, there's a swag of archaeological evidence for different parts of the Old Testament. Yeah. There's lots of gaps. We know that. Um, there's no clear historical evidence for Abraham himself. Oh, well. At one level, we wouldn't expect that. Why would, why sure. would one particular person from 2,000 years ago have left an existing footprint, text, tablet, you know, I was here, Abraham or something? Sure. sure. We don't have that. But there's enough indication of you know, key events that, uh, that, that are found with external historical evidence. I mean, I would want to say the Bible is evidence itself, right. but it's backed up and substantiated by numerous other bits of evidence. Um, the, 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 um, uh, you know, there's evidence of, of conquest in the promised land. There's disputes about some of the dating of some mm. of that evidence. 
But, you know, little trivial things. You know, they, the story of Joshua, for example, uh, he, he conquers the promised land, basically, after Moses dies. And we're told in the book of Joshua that the, the city of Hatzor is burned. Right. Well, that's very strange. And yet, at Hatzor, which they've found and excavated, been there a couple of times, uh, there is evidence of burning. Right. And it dates to that sort of period. Uh, to, to give another trivial example, uh, in about 620s BC, King Josiah reformed the nation and got rid of all the pagan shrines around the nation. Idolatry was rife because it was, uh, a world was polytheistic and Israel was not meant to be. And so in a city called Arat, uh, in the south desert of Israel, uh, they found what was most likely an Israel, Israelite um, place of worship because the dimensions of it are in the same proportion of the old Jerusalem temple. And there's animal fat still f was found on the, the stones and the dating of that took us to the seventh century BC. Okay. Now it doesn't prove that the last sacrifice there was in the time of Josiah and then he stopped it, yeah. but it does sort of fit well. Okay. Um, uh, now I've just picked out you know, a couple of slightly trivial yes. examples. Yes. But, uh, but there are numerous examples um, of, of the Israelites in exile in, in Babylon and King Cyrus's cylinder is in the British Museum that you can see that matches the ability of them to go back to the promised land after the Persians defeated the Babylonians in 538 or 539. So there's lots of gaps. We can't prove each individual or each conversation, but you know, substantially key things are, are supported by historical evidence. Some disputes about, um, you know, some dating, you know, was Jericho destroyed in 1400 BC or 1250 BC? Um, that dispute will probably keep going on. Uh, but there's evidence that it was, you know, destroyed uh, at different times. One of the things people, I think, have too high an expectation of what sort of evidence we should find. Mm. Um, we're happy to believe that Julius Caesar conquered Britain or yes. Napoleon won yes. the Battle of Waterloo, yes. but uh, there's no scientific proof for that, right. and nor is there for historical events in general. You know, you, yes. you're applying the wrong level of evidence for a scientific proof yes. when you're looking at historical uh, events, I think. And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's enough evidence to make me confident of Scripture's trustworthiness, the Bible's trustworthiness, uh, in the light of, you know, backed up by other evidence roundabout. Uh, I, uh, going into the New Testament time, uh, I remember reading something that was, it was old, uh, several decades old, doubting and almost mocking the, uh, the story about Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman procurator when Jesus was crucified. And uh, as though the only, we know the name because it's in the Bible and in the creeds. And, um, but... They found, I think it was about 1961, an inscription mentioning Pontius Pilate uh, on stone in uh, Caesarea Maritima, which is by the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. Um, now, it you know, doesn't prove what's in the Bible, mm. but suddenly you think, hey, this man was a real man. And on and on it goes. Um, it, it's about the weight of evidence, really, I, I think. You know, if, you, if you go to a trial and somebody's you know, convicted of, of a crime, uh, you don't get proof, but it's about the weight of evidence. Is this beyond reasonable doubt? Uh, to my mind, 
there is enough evidence to make me think this is beyond reasonable doubt that these events happened. And the significance of the events is not just that it's historically accurate, you know, that, that's important, I think, but behind that is because these events that are recorded in the narrative of Scripture are uh, historically uh, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, in my opinion, therefore the God who makes the promises that leads to those events uh, is a reliable and powerful God worth believing in. So how much then is, if, you, if faith is, rely, is trust and relying on something, how much, if someone chooses to put their faith in, in this case Christianity, and then I'll ask you about other faiths, but if they choose to place their trust in Christianity, how much should it be in those things, those evidences that you've talked about beyond reasonable doubt, and how much of it is that leap of faith where it's a, just a, a faith step to choose, no, I, I put my trust in this guy called Jesus? Yeah. Well, I think um, the, the language of leap of faith yeah. uh, can often have a wrong sort of connotation behind it. That, that is, it's not necessarily a blind leap of faith. Right. Uh, that is, it's a leap of faith. Well, not, not even a leap, really, but it's a step of faith based on a trustworthiness of the God in whom you're placing your trust. Right. The... Um, uh, because the... The, the God of Scripture, the promises that he makes, many of them are fulfilled in Jesus, but many of them remain to be fulfilled uh, in what we believe in the coming uh, again of Jesus. We can say more about that later, I think. But um, so I, I trust, I have enough reason to trust this God and therefore the promises he makes. Maybe just take a step back and we can push this further, I guess. But it seems to me the Old Testament story from Abraham very early on, Genesis 11, so this is really a preamble before that, um, is the story of the promises God makes to Abraham of, of descendants, land, blessing, world blessing. And those four things, I think, which is a package really, it's all intertwined. They become like the, the railroad or the, the main highway through the Old Testament. So the narrative of the Old Testament is shaped by those promises, supplemented later, a bit like when the Monash Freeway becomes six lanes or something like that, when God makes promises to David of a king and a temple. And the, story, the narrative stories are all about the, the engagement of those four later six promises. At the end of the Old Testament, it looks like they're gone. Um, there are promises of someone to come, but no one's come. Mm. Promises of the change of God's people, that hasn't happened. But then when Jesus comes in the New Testament, and there's a you know, three, four hundred year gap in the historical narrative between the end of the Old and Jesus coming. It's not right. like it, right. you know, the Old Testament doesn't talk about 100 BC. It sort of stops in the three or four hundred area. Jesus comes, and the language that's used of Jesus, whether it's by John the Baptist, by Jesus himself, later by Paul or by disciples, picks up numerous, so many numerous uh, things out of the Old Testament that we see that Jesus sees himself, is understood by others and Paul and so on, as, um, as the fulfillment of those Abrahamic promises. Uh, maybe not in the way that people might have expected with an earthly kingdom, and an earthly nation, they're, they're more, if you like, uh, models leading to a reality, a bigger reality, which is a kingdom of heaven in Jesus. Uh, so it's not just that Jesus appears out of the blue. There's a long 
build up to him coming and we understand him in the light of all that's been said before, mm. um, I think. Now you might, uh, let's go back to your question then about... Well, I'm just concerned a little bit about if you base what you said, your faith on the balance of evidence, if something comes along to shake the, the, the what do you call it, the, the cylinder in the British Museum or whatever, you, you can be on shaky ground. Yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, if, if we're talking about, say, archaeological evidence, yeah. uh, there are still lots of gaps. Yeah. One, of the, um, one of the phrases that's important with archaeology is that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Yes. So there are things that are mentioned in Scripture for which we have no evidence yeah. outside. Does that matter? Uh, to me, you know, it'd be, it'd be lovely to have more evidence. But um, we shouldn't expect evidence of you know, one man, Abraham, and his family who, living, who lived a fairly you know, nomadic life. Um, the absence of evidence doesn't mean um, you know, it's not an evidence of their absence as, as though they're made up. Yes, but I'm asking uh, a question beyond evidence. So I'm thinking of uh, people of faith who go around saying, see, we've discovered X, therefore my holy text is true, therefore my religion is true, suck it. And that seems weak to me. Mm -hmm. and the, the one who is kind of a more fundamentalist, no, I choose to put my faith in Allah or Jesus, seems to be in a stronger, unshakable position. Uh, yeah, I think, well, it, it, it's about the, um, uh, the weight of evidence mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and it's not proof. Uh, so there are still disputes about bits of evidence and mm. are they reliable or are they fake? I mean, there've been a few fake things in, in recent years that have been exposed. Uh, does that, does that trouble me? Uh, I guess so far I've, I've talked about sort of scripture's testimony, if you like. Uh, but, but there is an ongoing relationship with God for those who place their faith and trust in him as well. Uh, that is, uh, if you like, we could say a bit more subjective, uh, evidential, you know, God's, God's um, uh, relationship with me, subjectively, I suppose. Um, you know, the confidence that God's given me or, or, or how I see God has answered prayers and, and, and so on. That's, that's more subjective. Mm. Uh, but the fact that I've placed my faith in God is based on something uh, originally for me, for me personally, maybe more objective. Sure. Other people, I think, come to a much more subjective uh, faith in God, whether that's the, through a dream or a vision or, right. or some special experience. Yeah. And then hopefully it, it grows more substantial as they think back and understand more of the sort of objective evidence of faith, right. uh, if I can put it like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, now looking at other faiths then, what about uh, another faith giving you these dreams and experiences and, and you convert to Islam? Mm -hmm. So what is faith for other religions and are they valid? Yeah, well, I'm no expert on other religions, even though I've taught in, in Malaysia and so on. So I didn't didn't teach Islam. I'm no specialist in, in that. And I'm aware that, of course, there are people of genuine faith of a whole range of other religions, uh, for that matter. Um, and a bit like Christianity, there are people who would say, well, I'm a Muslim or I'm a Hindu or a Jew or, uh, you know, Confucianist. And, and for some, that's a sort of nominal thing. It's almost like an ethnic heritage thing. Yes. Um, that's diminishing in Australia mm. uh, and in the West as fewer people sort of claim a nominal faith, basically. Yes. Yes. Um, but it's, probably, it's very strong, I think, still in, in Asian countries. 
uh, that that sense of well, you know, my parents, my grandparents. I come up from a Hindu or a uh, a Buddhist background, therefore that's what I am, right. whether or not they practice. Right. So we've got to be, we've got to recognise that you know people's connection to their faith yes. might be sincere, or it might be an ethnic heritage yes. understanding. It could be fairly loose and nominal, I right. suppose. Okay. Um, I think uh, I, I I don't have a problem with people having uh, visions and and claiming therefore to be. A different religion and so on. Um, I, I think some of these things uh, probably do happen. Uh, I don't think it's helpful to try and say, no, no, you're wrong, it didn't happen, if, say, it's a vision or something. Uh, I guess the issue is the interpretation of it. What, what, how do you interpret what happens? You know, I, I'm, I, I think it's curious sometimes when you hear of people having visions of Jesus and coming to faith out of um, you know, Iranian Islam or yes. in Pakistan, for example. And, yeah, and there seems is common. A number, yes, it's, yeah. it's uh, uh, not uncommon in, in those contexts. For me, I think, how do you know it's Jesus? Mm. Now, I don't, I don't ask that question in the sense of doubting, sure. um, but we don't know what Jesus looked like, for right. example. There is actually no description of him in Scripture. Oh, well, we don't know if except he's... that he was plain or something about that. He's not... oh, well, in Isaiah, as it prophesies the servant <coughs> who would die, that he would be sort of, you know, people would look on him and, and, and turn away. Oh, okay. Um, but broad. But, uh, but I think, um, but we don't know if he's you know, tall, short, fat, bald, long hair, short he's hair. White, long hair, surfy. Uh, blue eyes in the stained glass windows, that sort of thing, I guess. Um, which you know in itself is is, is significant. You know, we mm. don't know what God looks like. Even the visions of God in in Isaiah six or in the Book of Revelation and so on do not really describe God. Mm. The train fills the temple and there's dazzling light and stuff, but you don't know what God looks like because I think in the end, uh, it's not about having a vision of God or Jesus. Right. What they look like. Uh, the key thing is what they say. Right. So when Jesus is baptized. A voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Not look at him, listen to him. And, um, and so the, it's the words that are spoken, which are words of, you know, faith, well, words of trust, I think, and faith, and then challenge and obedience. Um, that's what's important, not what they look like. But I, I'm curious sometimes, why, how do people know it's Jesus? Now, I, I don't doubt that it, yeah. it's necessarily Jesus. I suspect there is something within the dream or vision that that convinces people this is Jesus, uh, even if they don't understand themselves. How do they recognise that this is Jesus? Um, it's a bit like some of the Catholic visions of you know Mary and so on. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I I don't know what to make of that. I I, yeah. I keep an open mind. This all feels flim flimsy to me. With respect, if that's you who've had that, it all feels a bit soft. Um, let to me. Let me ask, what is, um, we, at this point, because you keep on bringing up this character called Jesus, who is this guy, briefly, I know you could talk about that for a while, because I get the sense that walking around, if you said to people, who is this Jesus guy, what's this God thing, this Christianity thing, anyone on the street out here in Melbourne, they would say something like, oh, look, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not mm -hmm. a murderer. So, you know, I just do my best to do the right thing. And that's their understanding of Christianity. And then you see someone who's done something terrible. That was a Christian. They're supposed to be really good, better than the rest of us. 
is that, I, I get the feeling that's not accurate. Can you describe to us what is Jesus and therefore by, by extension, what is a Christian and what is this whole message and this good news and this narrative? Sure, yeah. And there's certainly two, two questions there. Well, Jesus, firstly, was a historical person. Uh, there's no doubt of that. And people say, oh, he's just a myth or made up person, a cartoon character or, you know, fiction. Uh, I, I, I think are, are ignorant. There is, there is too much evidence of Jesus as a person uh, in history, in, in Jewish, Roman, and obviously Christian uh, documentation from the early first century. Uh, he was born in the reign of Herod the Great, probably around about 456 BC, uh, in this obscure little place called Bethlehem, um, uh, which has an Old Testament heritage from where King David was born, and was crucified under the Romans 30 or 33 AD, probably about 30 AD. Um, the place names that are talked about, um, there's evidence you know, of them pretty much. Um, I, I think it's important to realise the changes that after Jesus' death and resurrection brought other people. Um, it, it, it's when Jesus rose from the dead or wasn't in the tomb, it's women who testify to that, for example, on the first Easter morning. Um, women's testimonies were not regarded highly. So if this was a, a, a made-up story to mislead people, then why, why make it the women? Why not get the men to be the witness? Because oh, that would weak. carry yeah, okay. a bit more yeah. evidence. I mean, yeah. they're little things yeah. uh, in a way. Um, what you see is the transformation of disciples who, you know, like Peter denied knowing Jesus when Jesus was on trial uh, in Caiaphas's house. Uh, other disciples abandoned him, went away. And yet, a few weeks later, uh, they are boldly proclaiming Jesus, following Jesus, even at the cost of their life. Mm. You know, some people say, oh, look, that someone stole the body. Uh, did the Jews do that? Did the Romans do that? Or did the disciples do it? Well, the Jews or the Romans, if they stole the body and then realized that these people are proclaiming Jesus is alive and risen, they'd show the body. Here's the body. Yep. If the disciples stole it, why on earth would they give their life for something they know not to be true? And you get people like Paul as he writes. He's converted dramatically on the road to Damascus, going off to persecute Christians in Damascus and, um, and elsewhere. And yet his whole life is turned around uh, by that. Now, he's known, like his letters that are in the New Testament, the first ones are written in the late 40s AD, up to the mid-60s when he's put to death under Nero, most likely. What he writes about himself is known widely by people. Like he's not making it up because people, you know, there's living witnesses still around, the same with Peter's letters and John's and so on. We're dealing with things, letters of the New Testament very soon after the resurrection. The Gospels, when were they written? Some would say between 60 and 90 AD. That's not that long after, you know, 50, 60 years at the most. Still almost within living memory mm. and probably being written because the first generation are passing out uh, and passing away. But, you know, you think back now, you know, what's 50 years ago? 1970, it feels like yesterday. So we're, we're talking about things that are not written a long, long time later. Mm. Even if they were, that doesn't make them unreliable. So this Jesus has uh, preached the kingdom of God. 
Uh, he's helped people in his preaching draw out from the Old Testament where these promises of God are leading to. And the linchpin, I think, is the resurrection. Uh, he was crucified on a cross. That's, that's how we're saved. We'll come back to that. But, uh, but all of that's nothing without the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, if he remained dead in a grave, I wouldn't be a Christian. Why? Um, uh, because the resurrection is, is critical to seeing that Jesus is the one who conquers death. And the promise of conquering death in him has, has substance and validity uh, because he rose from the dead. I see. Critical. Um, so, and he predicted the resurrection. Like, it'd be mad. You, you, know, you imagine you meet someone and say, oh, look, I'm, I'm dying now. Uh, whether they're going to put me to death, but I'll be alive in a few days' time. Yeah. Uh, we, we, would, we would mock them. Jesus predicted his death at least three times um, to his disciples and others, and exactly what he said came true. So it's not just that he, he, um, he rose from the dead, but he actually predicted something outrageous. That fits a pattern of Scripture too that I didn't talk about earlier. That is that um, uh, in the Old Testament you get elements of prediction and prophecy, and then things happen. Mm. And, and so you know, when, an, when an event happens in history, there are different ways of interpreting it. You know, is Jesus' death just a miscarriage of justice, cruelty by Romans, or whatever it is? How do we interpret it? In a way, what's said before, whether it's by prophets, by Jesus, or, or, or God, helps us then, oh, that's what was said, Therefore, this is how we interpret the event because of it's God's doing that's brought it. We see that often through the Old Testament where a prophet says something and then it, then it happens, often a trivial thing, but leading to greater trust in the longer term promises. Right. Um, and so in the end, the, the promise of resurrection and the fact that Jesus rose um, and appeared to others. It's not just an empty tomb, but he appeared to the disciples. He ate breakfast with them, two men on the road to Emmaus, or two people on the road to Emmaus, even 500 at one time, we're told, uh, over you know, about seven weeks or so before he ascends to heaven in, in sight of some people, at least, seeing him do that. Um, we're talking about remarkable things. I mean, they know it's remarkable. The Bible's not saying... Oh yeah, this is everyday events, as though you know it's like a you know a, a, a fantasy novel. It's saying this doesn't happen, but it did, and and our lives have changed. So Peter, who was fearful, preaches boldly, follows Jesus. Traditionally, we think he was martyred for the faith, like Paul, like James, um, and many others. Um, so it's not it's not proof. We can't. You know, I, I think if you doubt Jesus died on a cross, that's a bit crazy because the evidence is, is quite widespread for that. But there's enough evidence, to my mind, uh, for resurrection through the change of the lives of people afterwards to think beyond reasonable doubt, this is worth trusting in. This man is worth following. Of course, you want to add to that the content of what he said. That is, his life and message were kind, moral, generous, uh, loving, compassionate, um, uh, high standard. You know, he didn't marry a, a, a young girl, for example, uh, or have multiple wives, or be known for violence. Uh, the most violent thing he did was overturn a table in a temple. He was angry at times. He wept at times. This is a man whose quality of life is worth considering, at least, in my opinion. Um, 
so the resurrection sort of gives me confidence to believe. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul said um, uh, that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he's wasted his life. He's mm. the most pitied to be of all people. Okay. And at times when I've emotionally felt, you know, maybe spiritually dry, it's coming back to Jesus rising from the dead that thinks, I can't shake that off. I can't shake off the fact that, that this really happened. So it's not about my emotions. Uh, it's about there is a, 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 an objective substance. Ideally, you know, your emotions of loving God and joy in the Lord will be there. But there are times when you, know, you get spiritually dry, you dry up for whatever reason, uh, and, and that becomes a, a rock that you rely upon at the same time. So how, <clears throat> when you, we started this, we talked about faith uh, is, is trust and reliance as opposed to mental assent. So if I was to, you know, we're talking about who is Jesus now. If you were to put your faith in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, how much of that is the mental ascent to simply mentally kind of convince yourself that that happened as a historical event, therefore I'm now saved? And how much of it is the trust and reliance part? And, and is it important to have both or not? How do you distinguish? Oh, I think there's both. Um, that is, it's not blind faith. So there is a, if you like, a, a mental ascent uh, that you say, <clears throat> this God, this Jesus, is trustworthy and able to uh, do what he says and therefore worth putting my trust in. But it actually is nothing unless you do put your trust in it. You know, a, a, an old example often used is of a chair. Um, do you have a scent that you, you know, this chair will hold you up if you sit in it? Well, yes, I do. Well, sit in it. Well, no, I don't want to sit in it. Like uh, that, that's a bit ridiculous, yes. you know, sort of thing. Yes. Um, uh, some people have also used it slightly more comical example. Uh, Blondin, I think his name was, who used to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. Right. And why you'd want to do that, who knows? Yeah. But people would watch him and then they'd say, well, can you, do you believe I could carry someone across? Yes, we do. Well, let me carry you. Oh, no, no, no. I, I mean, I wouldn't do that either, even if I believe he could. That seems yeah. crazy. Yeah. But the idea of, yeah, there's a mental ascent that, that it's not just blind faith. There's, yeah. there's something that you recognize this God is, is uh, real, trustworthy, able. Jesus manifests that. Uh, he's worth following. Yeah. The question then is become, well, put your trust in him. And what will that look like? It's not merely mental ascent. It's about actually trusting and, and, and following this Jesus, uh, accepting his values. Um, seeking to be like him in character, things like that. So for someone who wants to or tries to, to put their trust in him, but it can't bring themselves to, in this new secular scientific empirical age, accept the scientifically implausible idea that he resurrected from the dead. Mm -hmm. how, how does that person approach faith in Jesus if they, they can do the reliance part but they just can't accept an a seemingly unscientific notion. Sure, I, I understand that. Um, well, I think we have to say, remarkable though this is, and I cannot explain the resurrection from the dead, uh, there is enough uh, testimony to it that gives me enough confidence to say it's worth following this Jesus. So there's something attractive about Jesus, as I said, but there's something about this resurrection that makes me think, well, I don't understand it. I can't understand how people can rise from the dead. However, I also, you know, in the bigger picture of things, there is something more about 
just physical existence on earth in my opinion yes and and you know there are there are other stories of people who have you know near death experiences see something else that make me think there is something more. I mean, sure. most religions are clutching at something more. Yes, yes. Um, whether it's uh, reincarnation. You know, not, not that long ago um, in the news was the death of that Thai boy soccer star. Yep. And the idea of his parents back in Thailand was tragic, uh, really, for him. But to bring his ashes back so that they won't be caught in some you know, non-space or something. Now, that's that's a Buddhist you know, framework yeah. there, but there's this clutching at, at something. And I don't mean that critically, the word clutching of being critical. We want, we want there to be something. There are little signs of there being something in different ways, whether mm-hmm. people experience, you know, voices or ghosts or the sense of something else. The resurrection is, is to my mind, the most... Uh, objective of of that sort of thing that the death can be conquered um but then there's still that leap of faith that i mentioned but there's still a step of faith that's because it's not proof yes Uh, but we don't have proof for historical events or not just historical events the idea of resurrection from the dead we don't have scientific proof of that anywhere no true true um well but we've got the evidence of jesus Mm. and for my mind it's 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 evidence beyond reasonable doubt yeah so back to who is jesus who is jesus like why is he here what's his job what's this salvation stuff so um so then having talked about who this jesus is and the reliability of him what does it mean to be a christian and we many will be familiar with the language of you know jesus saves or salvation type language from what what that's right well from what and for what i mean it's not just from but it's also for right and um and so uh I think a public portrayal of Christians is that they're hypocrites mm. because we uh, claim to be good people, but we're not always good people. But actually, Christianity, at its core, recognizes that no one is perfectly good. Um, even the best of people fail. So, you know, I, 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 sometimes we have these, you know, human disasters, the, the, the floods, the... Um, the, uh, New Zealand not long ago had a cyclone and uh, an earthquake and so on. Uh, Turkey and Syria, the same. <clears throat> and you hear the best stories of humanity, people's generosity, kindness, opening doors to strangers, taking in refugees out of Ukraine, whatever it might be. But at the same time, often you hear the worst stories of humanity, people who then go looting the houses of people who fled the, the war zone or the disaster zone. Uh, maybe more trivially, but you know, lockdowns in Melbourne came three years ago with COVID. The best of humanity caring for our neighbours, the worst of it, buying up all the toilet paper. Right. That is, there's, there's greed and there's kindness. And, and it's not just, oh, they're the greedy people, they're the kind people. Yeah. But, but actually, we're all a bit of a mixture. Right. You know, there are times when I think uh, I've been kind to people but I think oh, I better go and buy up a bit more of a supply of food just in case they run out. Am I being greedy? Uh, I know that I'm, I'm a mixture. Uh, Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident oh. writer, said that the line between good and evil doesn't go between people yeah. as though you're good and you're evil or the other way around, yeah. but rather goes through each human heart. And I think he's spot on when he said that. That is, there are times when I know in my heart that I am you know, generous or kind or patient, but there are plenty of times I know when I fail, uh, and that's as a Christian. 
you know, and, and you know, ashamed and guilty of many things, whether it's thoughts or words or deeds or whatever. But why should um, a guy called Jesus die because you're a bit um, rude at the supermarket buying up the toilet paper? That's a bit <laughs> of an extreme response. Well, it is an extreme response if you use just that trivial example. But well, um, You haven't murdered anyone, from what I can tell. Oh, I haven't confessed that. <laughs> um, but you see what I'm saying? Most Christians, yeah. most secular people listening would say, that's great, Paul, but I haven't murdered anyone. Sure. And, that's, and, and then it comes down to, well, what are the standards? Yes. Uh, when I was at school, I passed with 50%. Yeah. Well, usually higher. Yeah. When I was marking once at a university in England when I was teaching, I discovered that you could pass with 39%. I what? thought, my goodness, that explains a lot about England. Sorry for the English Jeez. listeners. Um, but what, what is a pass mark? Yeah. Uh, more good than bad? Or I haven't done anything really bad? Yeah. And uh, so what sort of pass mark works? And I think it's, the Bible teaches us God's pass mark is perfection. God wants perfection. And when I think about it, that's, that's what I want. I mean, I want, I, want, I want not just for me, but I want to be in a perfect place where there is no uh, you know, crime, deceit, lying, greed, whatever it might be. Uh, we don't live in that. We're far from that. And uh, you, you think if there was no crime or sin or wrongdoing in thought, word or deed, our world would be utterly transformed. It would. We wouldn't have poverty. Yeah. We wouldn't worry about security. Uh, we would have better relationships at every level. At a whole rate, like we would utterly be different. And, uh, and so perfection is what God wants. He's perfect. That he demands, he said. Uh, what he wants. What he wants. And, uh, and, and, but we fail. Even the best of us fails perfection. And so Jesus uh, provides the gateway for that. Another way of putting it, Jesus said the summary of all the Old Testament laws, and they're in the Old Testament anyway, he's not making up something new when he says this, is love God with all your heart, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And none of us have met either of those two standards perfectly. There are times when I love God greatly, but there are times when I don't. I don't love him with all my heart, soul, and strength. I might be good, I might love him well, and might do lots of good things, but I don't reach that perfect standard. Love my neighbor as myself. And we know that Jesus teaches who anyone is your neighbor, whoever you come in contact with, not just likable, lovely people. Well, I don't love every neighbor of mine perfectly. Um, I fail. Whether I'm really good at it or not, I'm still failing. We all, we all know that. And we all know that no matter how hard we try, we're going to fall short. So, you know, you get up in the morning and say, right, today I will do nothing wrong. I'll think nothing wrong. And if we're honest, at the end of the day, yeah, I slipped up again. I might have been really good. People might have looked up to me, but I failed. God wants perfection. Perfection is worth having. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's what, to get to perfection, that's what salvation's about. That's what Jesus came to do. But why get to perfection before we get there? Because uh, same when I talk to Islamic people and some of the, I've spoken to some of the scholars there in, um, in Auburn Mosque in um, Sydney, they have a similar feeling as what you're saying, like um, Allah in that case, God demands or demands there, but you're saying wants perfection. 
But then when they say, they admit to what you're saying, we don't measure up, they say, but that's okay because Allah is loving or in Christian context, but God is kind. So it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Try. You didn't quite make it, buddy, but it's okay. Yeah. You're still not leading me to a position where he's got to send this guy called Jesus to die. Sure. Sure. No, no, we're still getting to that. Um, many religions are like this. It, so in Buddhism, it's about nirvana and reincarnation. And, and ideally, you're on a spiral that's eventually going to yes. get there. Yes. That's a lot of our effort. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we'll make it. I'll never make it. Right. Um, in... in in, in Islam, of which I'm no expert, sure. if it's about, oh, it's God, God's kind yeah. uh, and forgiving, that's certainly true in Scripture. God is merciful and kind and slow to anger. That, that's a, the most common verse of the Old Testament, actually, repeated numerous times. Mm. Uh, but, but what does it mean for God to be kind and forgiving mm. and maintain a perfect standard? Mm. How do you do both? You see, our danger is that we want to be kind and say, look, it's okay, you made a mistake, you offended me, you angered me, you hurt me, yeah. uh, look, just don't do it again, you know, blah, 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 and, we, yes. and off we go. Yeah. And, and that's nice and, and a good thing to do, but, but it doesn't change the other person. Right. And, uh, and so if, if God's like that, what's really happening is that God's dropping his standards from right. perfection. He's saying, look, it's okay, you only, you know, you, you're not a bad guy, but, but yes, you've, you've failed me here, but look, it's okay, just... Yeah. Now that that's that's a good quality in people and a good quality in God, but it's it's not perfect, mm. and uh, and so Jesus dying for us uh, pays the price penalty uh, to bring us real forgiveness, but more than that, ultimately to change us to be perfect. Uh, both those things come out of Jesus' death. Uh, we don't yet see the perfect perfection. That's, that's something that's at work in us and will be perfected on the final day. Uh, but but there, is, there is a payment, if you like, a, 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 an integrity of God upholding a perfect standard and, and why he can forgive us without dropping his standards. A key passage, I think, for that might be in something like Romans 3. But... Um, but if God was simply to say, look, you failed, don't worry, you know, let's carry on, then he's accepting something lower than perfection. But by having Jesus die for our failings and our lack of love and uh, lack of perfect love, then God is saying, I forgive you, I accept you, you're still one, you know, we can still be in a relationship together. But at the same time, I've upheld my perfect standards by Jesus dying on a cross. How, how does that happen? How does he uphold his perfect standards by Jesus dying for your sins, my sins? Sure, um, because uh, wrongdoing, sin, is how the Bible terms it. Uh, we would think of crime, for example. Uh, a penalty needs to be paid right. uh, for it. So, so maybe, um, I mean, th these are imperfect examples, sure, analogies. Sure. But, um, you know, if, if you did something worthy of a fine or an imprisonment yes. and God said, oh, look, you know, or the judge said, oh, look, it's OK, don't worry. Yeah. Well, what's happening is that what you've done wrong, yeah. whether it's a crime or a, a, a imprisonment, uh, has become an acceptable thing. Yes. And, and the standards dropped. Yeah. But at the same time, in, it, it's imperfect analogy. Uh, God's saying, look, I forgive you. But the fine or the imprisonment 
It's been paid. I've done it. By Jesus. By Jesus dying on a cross. So he's upholding a perfect standard as well as extending his mercy and kindness. And in the end, his mercy and kindness without that standard means that God's just dropping his standards. This is what I'm feeling, you know, in the back half of this interview, talking about um, relevance with society. We often talk about, oh, God's kind, isn't he? And, and um, yeah, we're going down that path of the standard. It feels like the standards are dropping everywhere. And there's this famous uh, thing at the moment happening in Sydney where they've got this, um, uh, there's a big gay pride uh, month, I think, happening in Sydney. And they've got this um, teddy bear um almost pornographic kind of thing up Wynyard Station being in a big mural. You may not have seen it. I'll show you after the show. Uh, And um, uh, people have gone and defaced it by throwing paint on it to cover it up because um, it looks a bit predatory. And I've got young girls and it's got teddy bear and then this this guy. So um, this idea of, especially in the LGBTQ movement, parts of it, hey, God is love, love is love, you need to be kind. It's just a constant lowering of the standards. That's what we're seeing everywhere. Mm. So back to Jesus, you're saying that um, if he, he, he takes the punishment, he takes the fine, so to speak. So what do people need to do to get him to take the fine for them? Like what's sure. the price the person pays? Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically to uh, accept that Jesus has done that for them, to thank him, to uh, trust him, to seek to live a life uh, that honours him. I mean, that's how we go from the mental ascent, let's say, to the actual practice. Um, So the Bible's word for this is grace. Uh, We're saved by grace, not by being good people or perfect people or hardworking people or or whatever. Um, Paul talked about himself as the chief of sinners. He tried to put Christians to death radically converted in a vision on the road to Damascus, and he recognized he did not deserve to be saved, did not deserve to be a child of God with a future with God. And so it is for all of us. I, I think we, our society is geared to sort of honoring achievement. Yes. Um, but Christianity radically pulls the rug out from our feet and says it doesn't matter how pious, devout, generous, kind, loving you are, You are only ever saved by God's gracious mercy in Christ. And so it's not because I'm baptized or because I'm a minister or a bishop or because I've served the church for many years or anything about me at all. I'm a Christian radically by God's grace. I do not deserve a future with God, no matter how good I am. That that clashes with our society and it clashes with our pride. A scandalous. Um, yeah, it is, I think. And, um, but we need to keep being reminded of it. It's interesting when Paul or Peter write their letters to churches, their churches that, that are new churches because they're writing in the first 30 years after the resurrection and there was no church before then, of course. So they're writing to the first generation of Christians. They would have preached and the church begun through grace and yet they're reminding them of the grace of God. Um, you are saved by grace. Because we still need to be reminded of that. We're not, we're not Christians by good standards. No, that, that I think is radical, uh, a very radical message. So yes, uh, Christianity wants perfection, but we fail perfection. We know that. 
sometimes the world doesn't, because the world doesn't get grace and it thinks that Christianity is really about yes. being good, yes. then it sees us as hypocrites. Yes. And, uh, and, and there are plenty of times when Christians, I think, are hypocrites. Of course, uh, but that, that would be course. natural considering what you've just described. But we fail, of course. And, uh, and so, um, you know, the gracious acceptance uh, by God of anyone uh, is a remarkable thing. That's so scandalous because you can sit there in your collar, which it's a a semiotic to me that you spend more time serving God. But I would have, according to what you've said, the same rights, the same position, the same standing before God, even if I haven't done all the things you've done. Uh, Exactly right. Uh, You know, one of the most scandalous things, I suppose, of words of Jesus was as he died on a cross, right next to him is another person on a cross who's a thief, maybe a, 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 a bandit, um, a robber, or, or brutal person. Uh, the language is a bit more brutal than just thief. And, uh, and he recognizes something about Jesus. The other person dying doesn't and mocks Jesus. But Jesus says to this man, today you'll be with me in paradise. Use a different word from you know, kingdom or heaven. But basically, here you are on a cross, mm dying because of your wrongdoing, which is serious enough in mm. Roman rule to put you to death. Mm. Today, you'll be with me in Paris because you recognize and trust in who I am. Now, this man on a cross next to Jesus, Jesus doesn't say you've got to be baptized and you've got to understand this and you've got to read your Bible and you've got to pray and you've got to be a good person. There's none of that. He's got no opportunity for it. That's right. And so, you know, what people sometimes call deathbed confessions are quite scandalous. That's not fair, um, Paul. And it's not fair. I could live a fully good life for decades and deny myself, and then the thief gets the same access as me? Absolutely. Jesus told a parable about that. The people who work all day for one denarius and the people who come in the last hour, and they work and they get the same pay, and people object and say, that's not fair. But my goodness, that's what... None of it's fair. That is, none of us deserve uh, to be saved by God in Christ Jesus. Uh, and I don't, and I'm not going to earn it by being a bishop or a minister or a preacher or a generous, nice person. Um, I will never be able to repay that. So that brings me then to what you started to save for something. What's the point of doing the next bit if I can just do the thief life and do a deathbed confession? Yeah, I know. Well, you don't know when you're going to die, do you? Yeah, so <laughs> uh, in, the old, in the early church, there was a time when they, they thought that uh, they got it wrong, but they thought that uh, you can't really sin after being baptized. Right. And, and so they delayed their baptism to their deathbed. Oh. Um, I don't want to run that risk, yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, well, what's the point of, um, of it? Uh, yeah, I keep failing. But um, God is good uh, all the time. And what is best is to be near God, to be in a relationship with him now. Uh, that makes my life better than waiting for, you know, thinking, well, I'll wait to my deathbed to do this and I'll live, I'll live for myself now. I don't want to run the risk uh, of that. What if you do it um, cyclically? So you live for yourself and every week on Sunday, this is what they do, right? On a Sunday, they repent. I'm oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Catholic confession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then for the rest of the week, I rob, steal, cheat, whatever. Yeah. And, and, you know, Luther's quoted as saying things like sin boldly, you know, sin, sin because God forgives, it's his business, these, these sorts of ideas. Yeah. Um, it's not what God wants. That is, if I really think, God, you're fantastic. You, you offer me this uh, mercy and kindness in Christ Jesus. Yeah. I want to be in a relationship with you. 
So let me come back to you next Sunday. Mm. Well, I go, well, that, that, that's not accepting what Jesus has died for us. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. Could you, would it negate your position, uh, your salvation, though? Can you cheat the system in that way? Well, I think it depends on the sincerity of the heart. So what, what is my heart really? You know, our hearts are fickle. Yeah. Uh, our hearts are not pure. There's you know, the line between good and evil in each human heart, uh, I suspect. So you know, is, is my coming back to God genuine and sincere? Yeah. That is, I, I, and, and I think there are times when that is. I mean, we, you know, I know I fail. I keep coming back to God. There are times when I really want to get rid of this, this sin or error in my life and love God more. And to be honest, there are times when I think, actually, I don't mind this sort of sin in my life. I wish I could just sort of cover it up and yes. pretend to God. Yes. That is, the sincerity of the heart matters. Uh, I don't want to speak ill of other religions particularly, but uh, it, it's, not, it's not just a superficial thing. So when I lived in Malaysia, there were stories that uh, they tried to buy villages to become Muslim. Ooh. And as Muslim, they would then vote for the particular government. It was political and religious and so on. That's not a conversion. And, 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 and it sounded so uh, paper thin. So, you know, just put a name and, <clears throat> and so on. I think that's ridiculous. Um, it doesn't matter whether your passport has Muslim or Hindu. It's where, mm. what your heart's like mm. with the God who offers us mercy in Christ Jesus. And so Christianity does, does know that, that our hearts are fail. But it's what, what, what is sincerity here? So the danger is we don't know what's in each other's heart. Mm. I don't know yours, and mm. thankfully you don't know mine. Mm. And, um, but God does. So I could do the sort of veneer acts of devotion or piety, you know, go to church and put an offering in a plate or whatever it might be, and people will think very respectable person, very pious and devout person. But if my heart's thinking... I'm just going to fool God or something like that. Well, you know, God, God knows our hearts. And Jesus teaches other parables about people who make an offering and this man's heart's sincere and this person's heart is not and things like that. God knows my heart, uh, unfortunately, but he does. But thankfully, he forgives me. Uh, but, but what he wants is a sincerity of heart, an undivided heart coming Sin back to him. Sincerity for what? To because we just said it's not about performance, right? Yeah. So it's not a sincerity to be the best Christian you've ever seen. No, 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 no. It's not a competition like that. It's a sincerity to love God with all my heart and soul and strength. Which you said that we can't do because we fail at. We fail it. God keeps forgiving because of mercy in Christ. I keep trusting Jesus' death that, that despite my failure to love God perfectly... He nonetheless accepts me because uh, the price of my failure has been paid by Christ. And out of gratitude and thanks to God for that, um, and knowing that I'm not saved because of anything I've done or could do, uh, I keep wanting to come back to God, uh, aiming you know, for a pure heart um, with sincerity. So you'd expect the thief on the cross you mentioned, had he somehow been pardoned, got off the cross and lived, you'd expect his life to change, not yeah. to go on. You'd expect it to change. Because that's, that's the, one of the arguments against salvation by grace is this idea of its license to sin, this scandalous message that you've just laid out over the past hour. Yeah, yeah. License and, to sin. And when Paul wrote to the Romans, not a church he founded, but uh, a church nonetheless that existed in Rome to which Paul was hoping to go and, and did eventually go ultimately to die. Uh, by, by expounding the, the scandalous nature, if you like, of grace, he then corrected 
a wrong thinking. That is, well, if I'm saved by grace, I can just go and keep sinning mm. uh, because I'll just keep being saved. Well, well, that shows the insincerity of our heart mm. in understanding God. And, and so Paul raises that hypothetical question, a rhetorical thing. You know, shall we sin so that grace abounds? No way, he says. Very strong response, actually, in the Greek language. So um, that is, if we grasp what true faith is, it will mean I'm not just going to turn my back and keep on sinning. I, I will come with sincerity to God, recognizing I do sin, but I'm not just going to go away and say, oh, look, I can go and sin again because God will keep forgiving me. Mm. I mean, that, that shows an insincerity, uh, I so think. That's at odds at uh, Martin Luther's that famous saying about sin boldly. Yeah, that's right. I don't think that's what Luther was saying, turn away to God and go and do your sin and come back and God will just forgive you next Sunday. He's yes, not really saying, not that. saying that. But, um, but he's, he's trying to use language to show, I think, the... The, the sort of um, the astonishment of, of grace, what true grace is. All right, let's get practical for our last sort of 20 minutes with you. Um, how do we make sense of the fact that the world, as you've been saying, sees Jesus, Christianity, God, the popular understanding in the West is very different, as you've ex explained. Why is it so different and why do they not, why do we not understand this whole scandalous grace message you've just shared? What's happened? I suspect that, that uh, society's never fully understood that. Mm. That is, I think, you know, you, you see how it's uh, proclaimed or preached by, in the New Testament, not just by Paul, but by others and Jesus too, and in the Old Testament. Uh, it's scandalous even then. That is, uh, you know, when Moses preaches to Israel, why are you God's people? Not because you're good, but because God loved you. And... And, and so even then, and through Jesus, and through Paul or Peter, uh, and, and the book of Revelation, uh, it's all a message of grace that's always scandalous. And so for 2,000 years since the New Testament, uh, it's the same. Society doesn't get it. People don't get it. Why is that? Well, my, my guess is that because our human heart loves to have achievement, pride, basically. Yes, yes. And, and therefore... I want to have claim merit uh, in my own, you know, doing good deeds or being a nice yeah. person or whatever, yeah. because that's that's how a fallen human heart, I think, works as um, as a person who thinks that I can achieve. Um, so a Christian something. heart doesn't primarily a think. Christian of those heart's things. still still divided. Uh, you know, Christian heart is still getting it wrong, but we're but we're also it's a heart that's being transformed. No, but I mean in a good sense. Like if you, if you had a, a pure and a good Christian transformed heart, oh, sorry, yeah. you, you're not. Um, it sounds like you're saying they're not extolling the virtues of their achievements and their their um, efforts. Yeah, I think what what's been commended in the New Testament. Uh, 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 humility and meekness and gentleness and selflessness and so on. So recognizing, yes, I, I, I'm not standing here claiming to be Christian because of my, my own deeds and my good deeds. Yes. Uh, any good that comes out of me is in response to God's grace first and foremost. And, um, and, and so uh, a humility about ourselves, a selflessness about ourselves, there's some of the fruit of the spirit, as it's called in Ephesians 5. Uh, there's part of the Christ-like character that we, we are to put on, for example, in Colossians 3. Um, so uh, not my achievement, 
but uh, you know, God's, God's grace working through me. Mm. Um, uh, Paul to Titus speaks about the grace of God transforming us. Uh, Paul speaks in another place of not I, but the grace of God within me. Um, not that, you know, it, it, is, it is nonetheless Paul who preaches or Paul who does this or Titus or whoever, but it's God's grace that's at work. Uh, changing us from one degree of glory to another. Not yet perfect, frustratingly so. Uh, but one day we will be like Christ. So what, do, how do you rate some of the founding fathers, if you will? So some of the, some of the Christian heritage that I mentioned at the intro of our Western world seems to be built on the faith of those founding fathers. In America, the founding fathers here, you know, Mother England, and then, but there's a Christian thing going on there. Do you think they understood this... Um, this, this salvation thing that's been lost along the way, this, this grace position. Uh, and really what I'm wondering is why there is so much Christian influence in our Western world, in our history and in our current societies, and yet a profound misunderstanding of what it really is. Mm. But, but the influence is everywhere. It's a Christian sort of based society. Yeah, I think uh, it, it's probably fair to say that uh, over the 2000 years since the New Testament, we we do see the drifting away from, let's say, gospel grace. Mm. Uh, I, I think um, uh, that had certainly seemed to have happened in, say, Dark Ages and medieval times in Europe. Uh, and then it was the discovery again of scripture by Luther and before him Wycliffe and Huss and later Calvin and Zwingli that led to the Reformation. It was about 1300? Uh, Luther was 15, if early 15s. So it's like and, 1,500 uh, years of, of, of losing. Uh, well, uh, coming and going. I think, I think there, were, you know, there were high points and high places at different times. As people, but, but a lot of uh, people had lost scripture right. um, and, and, and a misunderstanding. So when you've got a church service in Latin, but you don't speak Latin, yes. then you're not engaging with the Bible. And of course, before the printing press, which coincided with Luther roughly, um, People didn't have Bibles at home. Yes. You know, I've probably got a dozen Bibles and a couple on my phone. Yeah. So we're, we're used to that access now. Yes. Um, but in, in earlier times, people didn't, didn't have that. Uh, even in Old Testament times as well, you know, when they drift away so badly, uh, we recognize how important the role of the priests were to teach the people the scriptures. But nobody had it at home to read in the morning. That's very dangerous. Um, Oh. Yeah, well, there's no printing press, and people might copy it, um, and uh, but it, 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 that's an expensive job. But um, this is how we end up with indulgences and all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah, well, that was part of the, the abuses of the medieval church, um, uh, partly driven by greed, I suspect, trying to boost the coffers of the church. Um, so, you know, in later times, people drift away uh, from... Um, you know, gospel grace for, for all sorts of different reasons, you know, pride, greed, power, uh, and so on. Um, people wanting, you know, powerful positions, trying to take that in a, in a, in a church and, and therefore control what's taught in the church and things like that. There's a whole range of human sins that have led to the drifting away of gospel grace, which keeps coming back as people come back to scripture, to the Bible and read, Luther, Wesley, whoever it is, in different places. Okay. Um, and, and, and that's still the case today, I suppose. That is, there are churches 
that grasp the Bible better than others or Christians that do better than others, there's always the temptation to, to slightly move away and we've got to keep being reminded. It's uh, in the letters of the New Testament, it's interesting how often Peter or Paul or others say, I remind you, I remember, remember what I taught you. Uh, it's not a new message. Keep going back to what I reminded you, uh, what I've taught you before. This is uh, good because I, you know, I said I wanted to talk to you about some of the, um, the interplay between the world and the church uh, and Christianity nowadays and the way that we keep forgetting, for example, if we look at any one of the hot-button issues like um, uh, LGBTQ rights, um, that's the easy one, but even things like, you know, there was a big kerfuffle over the lockdowns over whether it was right or wrong for the government to do what they did. Uh, and then the big one, vaccine mandates. Is it right? Is it wrong or right to turn someone away from your church service based on the vaccine? So there are all these times where potentially Christians and the church are being asked to make a decision more and more, which may conflict with everything we've been talking about. So can we talk a bit about how um, how you see our, our, our the state of Christianity and the church in the world today? How at odds with the state or the secular world system or the society is it and is it becoming more at odds over time yeah i think um it's a complex thing the relationship of uh being a christian in and your relationship to society Mm. Uh, i suspect that uh christians i know in in other parts of the world like uh, pakistan and india and malaysia and so on uh, they're a little bit sharper on this sort of issue because they live in an overtly opposed society yeah. like uh, an Islamic or a Hindu or a Buddhist or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, and they're a minority within that. Um, I think one of the, the weaknesses of the church, I think, in the West is that because we've come out of a, a much more Christian majority uh, background is that we don't always see the clashes of, uh, let's say, gospel and, and the culture or society mm. in which we live. Mm. Uh, it's very easy to think that our culture is framed as Christian and therefore being a good citizen is being a good Christian. Mm. But I think that's always been a, 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 um, a flaw in thinking. And so um, we, we, because we're, we're immersed in a culture, and for many people they've never lived outside the current, you know, the culture in which they currently live, we don't always see it with, with sharp perspective. Yeah. Uh, so it is, you know, I, I'm thankful that I've lived overseas uh, in a couple of different countries, uh, one in the West, one not. And, um, and that's helped me sort of a little bit see, see sort of uh, from a distance. But, but certainly I, I, I am immersed in, in Western culture. We are a wealthy, comfortable country in Australia. So when I lived in Malaysia, which is a middle country, it's not as wealthy as we are here by any stretch, but it's not as poor as, say, Myanmar, where I often teach. Um, you know, how do we view our possessions, our entertainment, our fun, uh, and so on? Uh, we, we, um, that they're big gods or idols or, or, or you know, things for us here, much less so in a very poor country, mm. where it's more about existence. And, uh, and so uh, being immersed in a culture, uh, we've got to be careful to, to distinguish, well, what, what really are Christian uh, attitudes, values, behaviors within this? I'm not simply a good, you know, a good citizen in the citizen's eyes. I suspect Western culture is, because we are drifting uh, away, I think, from Christian roots, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing because... 
Uh, yes, I think society is better with Christian values, but what are Christian values without the faith that undergirds it? Which is what we have uh, now. Yeah. Which is what we have now. I, th I think what's happened over the last, say, 100 years or so is that uh, and, uh, we've never been a Christian country in Australia. In fact, I don't think there is really ever a Christian country. There might be Christian majorities, but, um, but where the faith was widely practiced, say, early in the 20th century, and then what happened was, the, I think, if I can generalize, the assumption is that, oh, well, my children will grow up to be Christian like I am, mm. but because they're not taught the faith, the gospel, but they think it's about a morality or a system of values, then they hold those values, but they don't necessarily, as well, not as many perhaps, have the roots of gospel faith. Yes. But once you've got the gospel or, or the values without the roots, then that becomes a bit, bit vulnerable to drift. Mm. And so the next generation uh, gives up, in, in effect, the overt Christian connections. Yes. And, and of course, then what happens is, you know, we live in a, a marketplace of ethics and different values. Um, so be it. I mean, that, that's the world. We're, we're, we should be realistic, in my opinion, uh, that we will always live in a world of competing values and ethics. And, and, and whilst I think Christian... Uh, you know, the Christian values, but the character that undergirds that is the best for our society. Uh, I've got no right to impose that. Yes. I think sometimes what happens and what is perceived, uh, and it's hard to know how to correct this, is that when we want to address values in society, it sounds like rules and regulations. Yes. And therefore what people see is that Christianity is rules and regulations. Yes. Uh, so that Christianity is just morals. Yes. And then they see a Christian who fails uh, and they see oh, a hypocrite. And, uh, and of course, truly Christianity does have uh, character and values, but it's undergirded by a grace that recognizes we all fail. But because that part of the root, if you like, is not exposed and not seen, what is what is often said and what is perceived is merely rules and regulations. Therefore, it's a legalism of religion. And therefore, when there's failure, people think there's hypo hypocrisy here. And then the next and then day, they reject it. Exactly. You yeah. can reject it at law. So you can yeah. start to yeah. pass yeah. laws. That's to... right. That's right. So, um, so I suspect you know, we, are, we are living in a, in a society that is now becoming a bit more opposed to Christianity. Um, that doesn't surprise me. I think the trend for this goes way, way back over decades. And, um, and so how do Christians live in this sort of society? Mm. One thing for some Christians is we've got to change society. Mm. But we change society by, by growing Christians. We don't change society by imposing rules. Now, yeah, I, I think it's right to advocate for good, just, fair rules and values that might come out of Christianity. But fundamentally what we need are people to grasp the gospel grace of Christ and then grow those values, if you like, from within themselves and be models of, of godliness in behavior and attitude. But if we simply are trying to impose values, which some, sometimes people hear that, um, then I think, I think we're, we're actually going to you know, fail uh, dismally. Yeah, it makes me think of like bans on abortion. If you hate abortion and you just go around banning it everywhere, I'm not sure that's going to change the hearts and minds of those who want an abortion. That's right. Laws don't change hearts or minds. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Bible tells us that. We know that. Uh, 
Is it right to try and stop abortion? Um, in many cases, probably it is. But is that actually going to promote a more Christian society? Not necessarily. And of course, there'll be the, the rebound against that as well. Um, yeah. So I saw a picture of you standing in a uh, jail, a mock jail cell uh, a couple of years ago to raise awareness for the plight of um, asylum seekers stuck in detention long term, indefinitely. Why are there, there, there are some issues that it's trendy. If, if we can consider society as being a little bit more left leaning or going that way and a little bit more disconnected from the roots, as you say, um, it's trendy to stand for something like that. Not doubting your sincerity. I'm just saying it's, it's um, trendy in, in, in that secular mindset. But it is not trendy to stand for, let's say, they, if they fully ban preaching parts of the Bible um, in, in Victoria. You know, this claims that you can't preach that there are only two genders. Is that true? If you, will you be uh, no, subject you are, to... You are allowed to preach that. Uh, you're not allowed to uh, counsel individuals about that issue okay. um, in a sense yeah but clearly we can that but yes but clearly we can see a gradual move to a place where potentially the state and the church will disagree so my question is how do you know how does a christian or how does someone in leadership in the christian sphere stand up for something like the refugees is relatively easy compared to if they ban preaching a topic and you've got to stand up for that how do you do that and how does the christian do that and should they do that mm. Mm. well i think um uh i think i think as a christian it's right to back people and support people who are uh, underprivileged under attack vulnerable whatever mm. Uh, more than to claim my own rights. It's more important, I think, to love your neighbour. Mm. Um, so, yes, it wasn't a hard thing to support refugees. That was early in 2022, mm. uh, when the refugees who'd been in long-term detention in the hotel in Carlton in Melbourne uh, was made more publicly known, partly out of the Djokovic yes. issue. Yep. Um, I think Australia, I think countries should be much more generous to refugees than we are. Mm. Uh, I think we've treated refugees appallingly on Manus Island or on, or on the mainland at times, uh, the separation from family. Uh, but I recognise it's a complex issue mm. as well. I don't think we should just have an open door. Mm. But mandatory detention, and for such a long time, mm. uh, is dehumanising. And, um, and you know, I think we've seen appalling uh, behaviour. I'm ashamed at the Australian behaviour. Uh, our world uh, has lots of messy places. Now, I've been staggered at the generosity of Western Europe to take U Ukrainian refugees. Not totally surprised, um, because Ukraine is a Western country, really. But, um, but you know, they have opened their doors to those people. Uh, we haven't seen quite the same open door of you know, Syrian uh, or Kurdish refugees. Uh, and so on. Um, I, I was in Lebanon a few years ago and Lebanon's population had doubled by 50% mm. with Syrian refugees. Oh, wow. I can't quite remember the numbers. It might have gone from four to six million, that sort of ballpark. Uh, so a third then of the in increased population were refugees from Syria. Many have now gone back. But a friends of mine where I was staying uh, were running uh, programs in refugee camps and, and helping these people who had nothing. 
Uh, we in Australia, because we're an island, because we're a long way away, I think we, we are a little bit too protective of ourselves, um, maybe a bit too selfish. Uh, of course, there are some refugees who come who are problematic, but there are many who are not, and most who are not. Um, but you're, see, you're preaching to the choir, uh, Christian and non-Christian. This yeah, is, that's yeah. not a difficult topic in Australia. Oh, today. well, I think, it, I think it is. I think there are Australians who, like, why do we have such restrictive policies? Because they're popular, and, the, and if a government had a more generous proper, uh, or a, a party had a more, more open reception to refugees, they wouldn't get elected. So I think, I, yeah. anyway, but that, that's the refugee issue. Yeah, but let's go to more difficult um, ones. Uh, yeah. I guess I have to be hypothetical because I asked you about that preaching issue. But if something is against scripture, I mean, I don't know if we want to talk about vaccine mandates, but just in the future, hypothetical, um, the church, I see, for example, in this state, Daniel Andrews is a professed Catholic, great, but there is an animosity when he talks about that guy, um, Andrew Thorburn, who was uh, kicked out of CEO of a Essendon Football Club uh, and others. And I don't know Daniel Andrews. I can't pass judgment on his faith, but I do detect a, uh, an animosity towards faith groups. Well, only Christian groups, funnily enough, not others for some reason. So I'm concerned that we are reaching a point at some point where some decisions are going to have to be made and potentially this separation of church and state will become a, a live issue again. Well, in Australia, there's always been separation of church and state. So but it's starting to middle. Well, yes, but we've never had uh, a, a, a joining of church and state in Australia. In, the, in England, uh, the Church of England is the state religion, Yes, even though... It's a minority, yes. but we've never had that in Australia. Right. Uh, so there's never, there's always been a separation of church and state. So what I think you mean is, is that the state, as in government in general, not the state of Victoria necessarily, yes. Yes. Um, their their laws are conflicting more and more with church. Yes, that's a good um, point. They're not in bed like no. Yeah, okay, I see what no. you're And uh, so there is a separation, and there always has been, and um, and that's in my mind probably a good thing. Uh, so there's still talk today of the Church of England being disestablished, for example. Okay. Um, that, my guess is that'll happen one day, but um, there we are. Um, I, I think uh, quite probably we'll find more and more clashes of, of Christian stances and values um, in our society. Like, we live in a mixed society, so it's almost impossible to have a job that keeps you, let's say, pure... Um, in, in your, you know, in, in many workplaces. So, what do you mean by pure? Well, you know, you work for a bank, um, and the, do the bank's values? Let's say you're a bank teller, but do the bank's values? Oh, they're not necessarily Christian. I see. Um, you work for uh, whether it's a bank or investment company or something, and and they're, you know, do you do they have an investment policy that you would thoroughly agree with? Uh, you work for an, as a teacher in an education department in a state school, uh, knowing that in some other people's classes things are being taught that you would thoroughly disagree with. We, we live in a mixed society. Uh, I think Christians have to learn maybe more. Uh, how do we do that with grace? How do we do that well? Um, I, I, I don't think it's easy. I don't think there's simple answers in that. I think we do have to have courage to, uh, to speak the truth. Uh, I think we have to distinguish between where society allows things that Christians might disagree with 
we have to distinguish that from where society forces Christians to compromise. So, um, for example, you know, our society allows uh, you know a whole range of you know, um, let's say, sexual behaviours. You know, uh, basically, adults having sexual relations with anyone and everyone, whether they're married or not, is legitimate in our society. It whereas is Christianity would would have a, a higher view of sexual relations within a committed relationship, usually called marriage. So our society allows all that, mm. um, but it doesn't force me to have sexual relations with anyone and everyone. So, of course, it doesn't. But mm. are there going to be laws that will force me to not to do or to do something that that compromises my faith. So, well, historically, that's inevitable. That that will happen eventually. Yeah, and it happens in lots of places. Yeah. So, you know, Christians being being a Christian is illegal in a place yes. like Mauritania or yes. North Korea, probably. Yeah. I suspect. Um, you know, we're we're allowed to be Christian. We're allowed to gather and go to worship. Some people said to me, in the lockdown, we can't go to church. This they are stopping us doing our Christian duty. And I disagreed with that. Right. My own view was that. This is a public health issue. It's not stopping me being a Christian. Yeah. There are mechanisms of meeting online. Um, why should I put at risk other people gathering only for church? I, I actually don't think um, <clears throat> in Victoria churches were penalised unfairly in the lockdowns. So how, where's the line there? Because this is what I fear. I it's not so clear, is it? So let's say it's, we're still... It's hard. What if it was still the case? Like gyms were closed longer than other... Um, businesses so in a hypothetical world clearly not with Daniel Andrews but 100 years from now if it was you know what churches preach horrible things like um, sex yeah. should be safe for marriage so you know that's bigoted yeah. so you're not allowed to open anymore yep. Yep. so we're only talking about a matter of degrees we're not talking about yes I think I think the difference in the lockdowns that we've had is that there were principles of health behind it so I was in numerous meetings with uh government and health officials at different times as a faith leader with other faith leaders and, and industry leaders um, often uh, putting in our opinions about how things should be and could work. I don't think we we're ever treated unequally, basically, um, with others. Uh, there were times when we pushed back on a few things and there were times they heard, I think. So, um, you know, they never said you can have... Um, a hundred people at at an indoor, you know, political convention, but only twenty indoors in a church. It was always equal. Um, the the different capacities. But that they may well change in the future. Okay. Uh, but but to my mind, the issue then was there is a health principle and there's an equal view about whether it's a church or whether it's a political gathering or a Rotary Club or whatever it might be. It, it it's all treated equally. There were, there were some cases of that, not being like with the horse racing and so on, but rather than get, us getting yeah, into a yeah, micro debate, let's yeah. zoom out and let's just look at the concept of, I'm wondering if the clash between the two cultures we talked about, the, the Christianity, the gospel, the church and, and the world and secularism, I'm wondering if that clash won't be so obvious because there will be half the churches were saying, no, this is fine that we're not allowed to open our doors ever again yeah. because we can meet online. And the other half will say, this is wrong. Yeah. 
Yeah, the danger, I think, is that churches will divide or Christians divide on different issues. But that's already what we see because, you know, churches have slightly different or Christians have slightly different views on or varying views on different matters of both ethics, but also different matters of how they see their culture, mm. uh, I think. You know, some Christians will invest differently from other Christians. Some Christians drink, some don't. Mm. So we've always seen those sorts of divisions. And I, I uh, not divisions, differences. I think as Christians, we, we do need to genuinely preserve our unity, even if we've got different views on these sorts of things. Can you do that when it's core? Like say with the um, LGBTQ stuff, slowly, I'll show you this picture after we finish, but the move into younger and younger yeah, minor attracted persons. I suspect so we're going to all have slightly different uh, you know, um, breaking points on some of these things. But eventually we'll but, all break. Yeah, but I think... Um, I think we've got to be careful not to rule out people within Christian fellowship who might have different views. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, we know 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a church that's full of mess. So they're divided and they're proud and they've got, you know, some like Apollo and some like Peter and they're, they're divided into factional groups, it seems. When they come to the Lord's Supper, some people don't wait for others. There seems maybe to be a rich-poor distinction. They're boastful about their spiritual gifts. They are approving a man sleeping with his stepmother. So there's sexual immorality. They're living in... uh, Corinth was known as a sexually immoral city. It was a port city. And uh, and so it had a a, a range of different ethnic groups and sailors and all those things coming, and brothels and so on around. It was well known for that sort of thing. So they're living in a messy society and they're a messy church. They're full of doubting the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and... um, and, and so on. Heresy, immorality, division, pride, lovelessness, etc. And in the opening part of the letter, Paul says, I give thanks to God for you. Uh, you're a church. You're sanctified, is the language he uses in the opening paragraph. And I give thanks for the gifts that you have. Although later he'll speak about them using those gifts. So he's writing, he doesn't say, look, you've got so much heresy, immorality, division and lovelessness and pride. Right. You're no longer a church. He doesn't say that. Right. So he sees them as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, a church that he founded, writing a few years later. Uh, so I, I think there is a generosity of spirit in Paul's welcome and embrace. So if I have Christian brothers and sisters who have a different view about, you know, whether it's sexual ethics or whether it's about this or that or the other, they're still my brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. And I think, I think it's fair to say we all need changing. Right. Like, like what I see wrong in someone else, I don't see necessarily what's wrong in me. So they may have a different view of sexual ethics, let's say, uh, uh, you know, um, what's usually called progressive or more liberal Christians. But, but I, you know, I know that my heart has pride and greed and so on within it yeah and so one person's sin may not be mine but my sins might be different or but my you, views might you're be calling different. it a sin though but but well yeah my, so, my so greed and pride in my heart is a sin no but you're calling and their sexual difference in i didn't say their sexual well sorry I'm, I'm thinking about my pride and my greed being my sin other people's sins might be different we might have different views on different things as well um and and yet, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, needing God to keep purifying and changing us. 
So I don't, I don't think people should be excluded. I think we should be keeping a, a welcome because as I go to church week by week or more often sometimes and hear God's word, join with Christian, Christian brothers and sisters in fellowship, hear God's word read and preached, often preaching it myself, um, then I'm hoping and praying that, that within the fellowship of God's people, I'm being changed more into the likeness of Christ. That, that my own failings, sins, blind spots, weaknesses, all those things, whatever we call it, are being purified and changed. And what other people's sins and blind spots and differences are all being changed. Uh, because, you know, the plank in my eye I don't see, uh, but I can see the splinter in someone else's eye much more readily. So, so I, I think we've got to recognise that, that we all need purification. We don't always see where we need it. Uh, we're often quick to judge others. Uh, I think grace that's accepted me by God uh, should be extended as grace welcoming others who are sinners, um, whether they advocate something I disagree with or not. Uh, we're all in need of God's grace and to keep purifying and changing us. Uh, so, Paul, this is all predicated on the idea that, that it's a plank, it's a speck. I have sin, you have sin, but the danger I see is not that. As you, you can be accepting if you accept someone is is sinful, then I accept them. You're showing them great, you're showing them mercy. But I'm saying we are redefining a lot of these things. So I'm not so much concerned about what you're describing. I'm concerned about someone saying no. It is completely healthy, and normal for a man to love a child. You know, these kind of slippery slope stuff that we're going down. Yeah, sure. well, it's not that new because, because oh, pederasty and so on was part yeah, of the ancient Greco-Roman world uh, and so on. Well, that, that's because we live in the world, but we're not of the world. Mm. So we, we have grown up in the world and the world's values, which, which move and shift, of course, mm. uh, they, they, they bombard us all the time. Uh, the world's values are in every advertisement that we see on, whether it's television, on billboards, or on the radio, or in a magazine, or something, all urging us to be greedy, or to be proud, or to be whatever it is. Those those undercurrent values that will be seen in different ways. Uh, we are all struggling with with the grappling of of the grace that's at work in us, uh, in a culture that is compromised at best, yeah. and. Um, and so we, we are there helping each other under God's word to keep growing to be more like Christ. And that will be ways that I don't expect in my life and suddenly think, hey, I've never realized that, that this thing in me is so fundamentally wrong. Um, for whatever reason, God doesn't perfect us on the day we place our faith in Christ. Mm. But it's Jesus' death for us that's powerful and will make us perfect on the day of his return. Well, I hope uh, we have institutions in the Christian faith and in other faiths that stick to their texts and what, you know, whatever their interpretations are, and they, they stay loyal to them. I, I'm, I'm most concerned about, of other faiths as well, dropping them and lowering the standard. So it's been uh, nice to see them stick firm. Uh, the reason why I'm rushing a little bit is I'm trying to get you away for your next appointment. So let me just ask one more question uh, to finish off. What do you think is the um, sort of the key, um, the, the unlock, the hack, the cheat code for most people's lives today? We're living in more uncertain times, uh, depression, anxiety on the rise in the Western world. Um, certainly we have real things like wars and what have you and sicknesses and so on. Do you see a, 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 a panacea that would not just sort of fix everything, but what would be kind of the, 
anchor for our soul? Is there a way we can have an anchor um, to help us through increasingly troubled times? Yeah, are these increasingly troubled times? I'm not sure necessarily that they're increasingly. Um, that is, I think over 2,000 years, at least since Christ, uh, the world is a troubled place and an insecure and unstable place. Um, whether it's a war or a pandemic, I mean, we, we've had a pandemic and that's the first in our lifetimes, but they have happened before. Um, we, we, we are seeing you know, the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs of a fallen world. Um, natural disasters have been there all the time. Uh, you know, are they happening more often now? Maybe, maybe not. I don't think that matters. Uh, not that they're un, unimportant, but we, we live in troubled times and uncertain times. Uh, the world is not a secure place. And, um, and it never has been. And, uh, and so who is reliable and trustworthy? Ultimately, in my opinion, it's only the God of the Bible, the Father of Jesus Christ. And, um, and it's worth placing our faith and trust in him. Uh, there is a tension, I think. We, we are living in the world, but not of it. We're citizens of heaven if we're Christians. Uh, we are wanting to make the world a better place. That's a good thing. We're wanting people, or should be wanting people, to, to come to faith in Christ. But we're also looking forward to the day when he comes again in glory and brings in the perfection of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and the New Testament hope of that is strong, as is indeed the precursor of that through the Old Testament uh, as well. It's not a new idea fully when you get to the New Testament. Sometimes we think, oh gosh, can we really trust that Jesus is returning and glory is coming? But given the, the, the faithfulness of God to all his promises through the 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ, I'm prepared to keep waiting and trusting that Jesus will return in glory. In preparation for that, then, uh, help make our world a better place in love for our neighbour, uh, help people, encourage people to come to faith in Christ and be ready for his return and to keep growing in, in the likeness of Christ, in godly character. Um, the idea of the anchor for the soul is, that, uh, is, is, a, is an image picked up from Hebrews chapter 6. Is it? So, um, I'm wondering where, I've been thinking about it a lot lately and saying it, I don't know where it came from. Yeah, so Jesus is our forerunner, so through his death and burial and, resurrect, and then resurrection from the grave, then he ascended to heaven, and as our forerunner, placed there an anchor for our soul in the presence of God in Hebrews 6, near the end of the chapter. And, uh, and, and what it's saying is that Jesus is the forerunner. He's already there. There are other ways in which New Testament letters speak about, you know, our citizenship is there. Our life is hidden with Christ up in heaven already. That's where we belong. And that anchor is, is sort of strapping us there. That, that's where we belong. Oh. That's our security. So it's not an anchor on earth. So there is the sense of refuge on earth, uh, coming under God's wings in, in the Psalms imagery, uh, for example. But actually the real anchor is placed by Christ in heaven. He's the forerunner, that is. He's gone ahead of us, like he says in John 16, to prepare a place. But he's there already, and he will come again to gather us to be with him in that place. What that will look like is hard to imagine, uh, but, but that's my hope.
And it's a secure hope. It's an anchor hope. It's not a wishful thinking. You know, I, I have a hope that Richmond will win the premiership again this year in Victoria. Yeah. But it's a wishful thinking. It may happen. It may not happen. There's no security or certainty of that hope. But when, when we think about, well, what is my ultimate hope? An anchor is a very fixed image. And it's a secure hope because that's where Jesus already is. Nothing more needs to happen by me or him to, to guarantee that future hope. Uh, it's a secure hope. So as an Anglican bishop in our Anglican funeral service, we use the language of uh, born again with a sure and certain hope of the resurrection, not a wishful thinking of the resurrection from the dead, but a sure and certain hope. Uh, and that's my anchor. That's in Hebrews. Hebrews 6, 18 to 20, I think. Oh, <clears throat> I was raised in, as a Christian in Christian churches, so maybe it's in there somewhere, but I've been fascinated by this. Thank you. I've been wondering where's this anchor idea come from? I could have just Googled it. Uh, Bishop Paul Barker, thank you so much for having a chat today. It's my pleasure. This, this, this kind of um, perspective on Christianity, I'm just not hearing, so I appreciate you elucidating it. Uh, and overall, I feel a sense of uh, rest about it. Everything you've proselytized, everything you've said to me, promoted to me, marketed to me about this Christianity thing, even though I am a Christian, I feel like um, there's a great sense of rest about what you've laid out. Uh, and I, I don't hear that very often. I, I wish more Christians and more people in general would find themselves in a place of rest and from there yeah. live a good life. So. Me too. Thank you very much. I'll let you get we didn't even get to talk about the canonization of the Bible and all that another time. Thank you very much for being okay. here. People want to um, find out more about this whole church thing, they should just go to a local Anglican church, right? Indeed. Why not?